This season on Three Things, we're zoning in on one theme, peak performance. What does it take to achieve greatness? How do you maintain it? And how do you continually find areas to improve in every area of your life? People are driven by different things. To me, the great peak performers out there are the people that are driven by this notion of there's always another gear. There's always a way to get better. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. In this episode, Rick talks with renowned doctor, expert in longevity, and host of the podcast, The Drive, Dr. Peter Atia. We'll find out the magic number of hours you should be exercising to prevent dementia, why if you fall asleep quickly, you're probably doing it wrong, and how to stop this from happening too often in the middle of the night. This is Three Things with Dr. Peter Atia. Today, I have with me a very dear friend of mine. Peter is one of the most knowledgeable people about the process of aging. He happens to be uh, an ultra uh, competitive athlete. He has done things that many of us uh, from racing cars to going to medical school to being a McKinsey consultant. This guy has done it all. Um, Brilliant, thoughtful, kind, and I am just super excited to have you here, Peter. Thanks so much, Rick. All right, Peter, let's uh, let's jump right in. Tell us what is longevity and why are you so passionate about solving that puzzle? Uh, Well, you know, I sort of define longevity as having two pieces. The first being the lifespan part, which is the how long you live part. Um, And then the second part being the health span part, which is the how well you live part. So the former is, I think, easier to understand because it's quite binary. One is alive or one is dead. There's no in between when it comes to your actual, you know, death certificate. Um, But the latter is both more complicated because it's analog and it's, you know, there's a scale. One doesn't just go from living really well to not living really well in an instant usually. Um, and truthfully, I think it's the one more people care about. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of people saying, I just want to live to 100 no matter what. I hear more people saying, I want to make sure that when I'm 80, I can still play with my grandkids or my great grandkids. And so that has three pieces, a cognitive piece, right. which is, you know, preserving the mind and, and what defines cognition. So, you know, executive function, processing speed, uh, memory. There's the physical piece, so the ability to actually uh, maintain muscle mass, bone density, functional movement, and freedom from pain. And then there's an emotional piece. Um, You know, you and I have spoken so much about this. It probably is the one that interests me. uh, It might interest me at least as much as the others, if not more, which is none of this stuff matters if you're miserable and if your life sucks. You know, if your relationships suck, if, if you're unhappy, um, it doesn't really matter how long you live. In fact, it inversely becomes a bit of a curse. Huh. So let's dig in a little bit into each of these areas. Um, on the cognitive side, what are some of the hacks that you, uh, do you think that work and the things that don't work? And there's a lot of different thinking out there today. Well, we, we, we certainly have a sense you know, of cognitive health because a disease state like dementia robs you of cognition and so unlike on the physical side where we see decline and there are so many common pathways to get there dementia is a little easier to understand and therefore it serves as a proxy so things that you know prevent or delay dementia tend to be good for cognition Hmm. and so if you if you take a subset of dementia called alzheimer's disease and you look at all of the things people can do to reduce their risk of alzheimer's disease we basically can extrapolate from that and say those are the best things one can do for cognition. And um, I think the, the, the biggest four, frankly, are 
factors that deal with nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we maintain the greatest amount of metabolic flexibility and insulin sensitivity? Um, we know that in a subset of patients with Alzheimer's disease, they become resistant to insulin. So um, even though I don't like this term that much, one way to think about it is they get diabetes of the brain. Hmm. Um, so all the things that you would want to do to avoid getting type 2 diabetes, you will want those things to be happening at the level of your brain. So that means being metabolically flexible means no matter what you eat, your body knows what to do with it. So for some people like me, um, that means I have to be very thoughtful about things like refined carbohydrates and sugars. I, those things have to be eaten in very small to modest amounts. Um, processed foods in general, just a very bad news. That also means spending a lot of time fasting or restricting the window in which I eat because that also forces my body to sort of become more flexible with different fuels, fat versus glycogen. Um, I would say exercise might be the one for which we have the best evidence. Uh, in fact, I'm writing about this in my book, but five years ago, I sent out one of my analysts on an errand, which was, I want you to go and figure out, bottoms up, what is the single most potent intervention we have for dementia prevention? And after a full year, this guy named Dan Pelichar came back and presented all of his data. Of course, along the way, we had many touch base, you know, right. re, you know, whatever. But the final synthesis was the best evidence to date is that exercise through the creation of something called BDNF, which is a growth factor, um, is the most potent stimulus we have for protecting our neurons. And, and I was like, Dan, that can't be right, man. That, right. that is just too right. simplistic. <laughs> There's got to be some other drug or supplement or hack out there that's more potent than exercise. But of course, I was wrong and he was right. And as we dug more and more into those data, which eventually became a paper that we published with Richard Isaacson, the neurologist I've talked with you about before, um, it, it turned out that exercise is, is unquestionably the most potent thing. So I, I recommend that anybody who cares about their brain should be making an hour a day at minimum to exercise. How rigorous? And in, in take somebody in their 50s, right, where you have... We tend to put people into, we think there are four pieces of exercise. There's the stability part, which we won't get into today, but that's the, basically is the chassis strong enough to support the load. And if mm -hmm. that's not there, none of this other stuff matters because you're just going to get injured. Then there's the mitochondrial aerobic base that is essential. And, and we believe that the minimum effective dose is actually three hours a week. And that's a level of aerobic activity at which you could barely maintain a conversation, but if you needed to, you could still talk. So that's not hugely strenuous. That's not doing wind sprints. Um, for me, that's being on a bike at just below 200 watts or being on a treadmill at 15% grade at three and a half miles per hour. So, you know, like today, when I, I did that workout today, I do four hours of that a week. I spent 10 of those minutes talking to my kids on FaceTime. So I was still able to at least, you know, they knew I was on the bike and they knew that that's what I was doing because I'm you know, in New York right now and they're not. Um, but we think that three hours a week is the minimum effective dose of that type of aerobic training. And I think that's something that everybody can be doing. And then the strength training component is also very important. Um, and again, once you have a base of stability such that you're not going to hurt yourself and you can transmit load to the outside world and let the outside world transmit load to you through your muscles, not your joints, you know, then I think you're really set. Huh. Everything else is gravy after that. And is it age related? Would should, you know, someone in their 40s or their 60s, would that the intensity of that change? It's a great question. And it's one for which we don't have that resolution in the data. Um, I think the best thing I can say is 
never get out of shape. And if you're out of shape, get back in shape and stay in shape. Um, but it's such an important part of longevity. And again, this, this BDNF is brain derived neurotropic factor. I mean, this stuff, you just want your brain bathing in this stuff. Um, it's, 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 you know, it can't be overstated the benefit of exercise. It's, you know, exercise and nutrition and sleep are these three things that are so potent in their efficacy and longevity that I sometimes get asked by venture capitalists, you know, like, what do you think is the most promising drug out there? This, that, the other thing. And I usually say like, honestly, guys, like the most potent drugs out there have been around for billions of years. We just need to know how to dose them better. Yeah. That's, that's, that's actually a problem I'm more interested in is how do we answer these questions you're asking about dose, frequency, timing on these amazing drugs we already have, which then gets me to the third one, which is sleep. Yeah. Um, if you care about your brain, you have to sleep. And despite what a lot of people think, um, the probability that somebody listening to this is in the camp of needing six hours of sleep is exceedingly small. Mm-hmm. Um, virtually anybody out there uh, is going to require minimum of seven and a half and upwards of potentially nine hours of sleep for optimal function and brain health. So all this you know, talk of I'll sleep when I'm dead is, is, is quite a paradox because all you're doing is accelerating the probability <laughs> of that. How about this? Let's stay on sleep for a little bit. And you and I were the aura ring. And while I've heard you on your podcast, which I highly recommend, uh, The Drive, I, I really, I heard you talk about is not, you know, necessarily super accurate, but as long as you're measuring over time, you're, you're going out of the same kind of set of data. How much deep sleep, REM sleep, total sleep, what's your view on that? I, because of what you said, which is I think it's very difficult to, I don't think we know yet the accuracy of the stage estimates of all of these devices. I, you know, I happen to use this one called Aura. By full disclosure, I'm an investor to that company. Or in that I'm company. not, and I use it. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm an advisor to them. So I always want to make sure people know my disclosures cleanly. Um, I don't think that matters per se. You know, I think if you're using a Fitbit or a Whoop you know, band or any of these other devices out there, the most important metric I think is time in bed. As a general rule of thumb, if you're 85 to 90% efficient, which means your total sleep time divided by your total time in bed is 85 to 90%, and you can say, look, I'm never going to be in bed less than eight hours, and ideally closer to nine, you're very likely to hit your targets. Now, that doesn't guarantee appropriate staging. And of course, the ring, I think, and other devices are pretty good at measuring other things like latency. So for example, if you're falling asleep one to two minutes after getting in bed, that's a bad sign. That means you're way too tired. Um, If you're waking up six times during the night, that's probably a bad sign. You know, maybe you have too much cortisol, you're ruminating too much, there's too many things going on. All of this stuff gets more complicated and ultimately a sleep study is the only way to truly confirm what stage you're in and, you know, make sure you don't have something like sleep apnea. Um, but just in terms of basic blocking and tackling to spend eight to nine hours in your bed each night and to go through the appropriate sleep hygiene. So I use blue light blocking glasses from 7 PM. I'm generally taking electronics away completely, even with the blue light blocking glasses and the blue light filters embedded within the electronics in the hour before bed. I'm trying not to eat too close to bed. I've virtually eliminated alcohol from my repertoire because of the effect that alcohol has on sleep. I mean, I probably average four drinks a month. Um, Alcohol really, really, even though it makes you drowsy, it's, it's actually destroying your sleep. So it's by doing all that stuff called sleep hygiene, keeping the room very cold. I use like a a mattress thing that pumps cold water through my mattress and and Mm -hmm. keeps me nice and cold. I mean, you know, just doing all these things makes makes a difference and it starts to become cumulative. 
I, you know, part of the skeptic in me says, you know, a lot of this beliefs, because there are more beliefs there, there's some data, but not necessarily conclusive data. Eventually, like, oh, no, blue light was great. I'm, I'm, I'm making that up, right? But um, <laughs> Well, it is great during the day. In fact, it's yeah, to sleep like, But yeah. how, how, do, how do you kind of, kind of take that in, in faith and say, you know what, it may not be 100% perfect, but I know it's enough right. You know, how, how do you make those commitments when things that are not scientifically proven? You know, you know, you and I have talked about business before, and, and one of the things you said is the worst thing you can do in business is make no decision, right? right? And sometimes, uh, sometimes an imperfect decision is better than sitting on your hands. And so a lot of times when people say, well, I'm a skeptic of X, Y, and Z, and I say, well, that's fine, but you still have to make a decision, and your indecision is a decision. Mm-hmm. So we do the best we can. Um, now, this is very different from if you were asking me as a policymaker, which I'm not. But if I were a policymaker and it were my job to say, with incomplete information, how do I make policy? Boy, that's a, that's a much tougher problem that I'm glad I don't have. Um, but at the individual level, we also have tools that we can sort of customize our approach to people. Mm-hmm. So there is no denying certain biomarkers or certain metrics. Um, for example... In as much as we can believe the sleep staging of these devices, the difference between using blue light blocking versus not is profound on both melatonin secretion mm-hmm. and sleep staging. So in as much as we believe having more melatonin secreted at night is beneficial, and there's ample evidence to suggest that, mm-hmm. um, then you can see a direct causal relationship between making a change and not. So sometimes you have to take this sort of you know, reverse engineered approach to kind of coming up with these things. That's really interesting. Um, last question on sleep, because I'm fascinated by this topic and I feel like I, I know 2% of what I want to learn. Um, when you wake up in the middle of the, of the night and, you know, for whatever reason, um, what are some of the tricks uh, that you have, you know, studied that help people go back to sleep? It's a tough one. It's tough for me. Um, so, so even when I wake up, um, you know, I, I obviously, I mean, the, the most obvious trick is I don't do anything to sort of try to wake myself up more. So I don't turn on lights. I don't even have a phone in my room. So I'm not even tempted to look at a phone or do anything that's going to sort of wake me up. So usually when I'm waking up, it's because I have to pee. Right. So one, I try to eliminate that as much H as possible. sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> Having a prostate does suck. Um, so, I, you know, the more I can eliminate that, the better. So most nights, luckily, I don't get up. Yeah. But if I'm not diligent about drinking, you know, anything, water, there's another reason to avoid alcohol. Alcohol is an antidiuretic. Ethanol inhibits yeah. um, your ability to maintain, you know, this this state of not making too much urine. So it accelerates urine production. Um, so... That's step one is be preventative. Try to do everything you can. That said, if you if you get up, I, I mean, I literally will, with almost eyes shut, shuffle to the bathroom, pee, and try to get right back into bed immediately. Yeah. Um, that said, if I'm, if I'm really struggling, which probably happens once every month or once every two months, where I cannot go back to sleep, right. um, I will actually get up and begin the day. And I will take the hit on that night but make sure that I build up enough adenosine that I can go to bed early the next night and resume my cycle. But what I think is a bad idea, and I think most cognitive behavioral therapists will agree with this, uh, so the CBTI, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, uh, which is a very important tool in the toolkit, is um, you do not want your body to get used to being in bed and not sleeping. 
So the worst thing you could do is lay in bed at three in the morning, accept that you're not going back to bed, turn the light on and start reading, or worse yet, you know, pick up your phone or something like that. Hmm. So you want to really avoid that stuff. You want to really avoid the conditioning of, I'm in bed, but I'm not sleeping, and it's three in the morning. You know, we talk a lot about the impact of technology on our kids, um, but no one talks as much about the impact of technology on our kids' sleep. And, you know, this, I, I, I think a lot of kids not only live with their devices in bed, but... It's devastating. It, it, we, we moved our daughter to a different school this year primarily for that reason. She was in, a, she was in the public school near our house, and it's an all-electronic school. Mm-hmm. So they do everything. They don't write. They never wrote anything on a piece of paper with a pen or a pencil. Everything was done on an iPad. Right. And that meant her homework was being done on an iPad at 8 o'clock at night. And I basically just threw a hissy fit after this. I mean, I went to the school, pleaded, pleaded with the school, said, look, I'm not the world's expert on anything, but you got to trust me on this. It is not a good idea to have kids looking at blue light at 8 or 9 o'clock at night and, and trying to sleep. I mean, I wouldn't let my patients do that, let alone my own kid. And, you know, they said, well, thank you, but no thank you. Right. And so she's now in a school that uses minimal electronics. They, you know, they still have a library with books and uh, they write on paper. So, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I, I worry a lot about kids looking at electronics because I think kids are even more sensitive to this. And I think kids, as important as sleep is to an adult, you take a you take a brain that is growing at the velocity that theirs is growing and who who need to assimilate information at the i mean you know you think you have to assimilate information yeah, i mean true. you think about what a 12 year old is going through uh, and you do anything that deprives them of, the, of that you know this part of their brain called the hippocampus that's the epicenter for consolidation of new information um is is one of the most sensitive parts to the brain to light um, and to the deleterious effects of light as it interferes with sleep Let's uh, let's move to nutrition a bit more. Um, is this one size fits all? You mentioned for you, you know, the impact of carbs, the impact of processed foods. Is that a universal truth, or is that a a Peter truth? No, I, I don't think there's. I mean, I think there are certain things that are universally true, and then there are things that now become relative shades of gray as a function of the individual. But even the things that are universally true. Let's just start with what the standard American diet is. The standard American diet is basically eat as much as you want whenever you want of whatever you want. So I would start with the assertion that at most 10, perhaps 20% of the population, but probably closer to 10, just empirically, can tolerate that type of eating and do okay. So then we have to figure out a way to be restricting some element, either what type of food we're eating, so that's called dietary restriction, when we're eating, that's called time restriction, which branches into fasting, or calorie restriction, just how much we're eating in total. So within the elements of dietary restriction, things that are universally not healthy would probably be anything that is refined, processed, or contains high amounts of added sugar. So that's sucrose or high fructose corn syrup. And I think just for the sake of time, I won't go into all of the evidence that supports that. Um, If you really want to be unhealthy, probably the worst thing you could have is liquid sugar. So there's something very unique and harmful about sugar in a liquid form, much more so than in a solid form. Really? Yeah. So in other words, eating a donut's not good for you, but drinking a soda is really bad for you. 
uh, or drinking orange juice even, which sounds very healthy. But it's the velocity with which the fructose, which is the sweet part of that molecule, escapes the first part of your GI tract and gets into the second part of your GI tract. That's the real problem. Now, as far as something like carbohydrates, and again, I'm not talking about junk carbohydrates. I'm talking about, you know, rice, potatoes, beans. Everybody, I think, kind of exists on a spectrum of carbohydrate tolerance. And the, the problem is most people, myself included at times, are so myopic, you only view the world through where you stand on that spectrum mm-hmm. or that continuum. And you assume that those to the left are eating too much and those to the right are not eating enough. And at different stages in people's life, right, the difference between being an athlete and not being an athlete is significant. The difference between being 60 and being 20 is significant. As we get older, it gets harder for most people to metabolize and process carbohydrates. I mean, most people argue, hey, I'm not eating that much different than I did in my 20s. It just seems to stick around a little bit longer. And part of it is they're probably less active. Maybe they're seeing some deterioration in their sleep as well. These things are so interrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, but, a, but a part of that is also their own capacity to um, partition fuel, which is the technical parlance for this, uh, is changing. Do you see a world where you know, the government will tax different kinds of foods or, you know, you know, we, we're you know, technically are almost you know, drugging our kids with all this processed foods. And, you know, you go to a supermarket, it's all processed foods and uh, fast foods is all you know, kind of junk food. What's your take on this? And where do you think this should evolve to? I, this is really tough. And like I said, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to think about this. Um, I think economic theory would suggest you're probably better off subsidizing good foods than taxing bad foods. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be people who will uh, question that and, 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 and disagree with me on that because I'm, you know, truthfully, I'm, extract, I'm extrapolating from data on smoking cessation. Uh, so the data there seem to be pretty clear that if you want to get, and at least this is in a Medicaid population, if you want to get somebody to quit smoking, you're way better off giving them a thousand bucks than taxing them more on the cigarette. I believe you could take a population and if you completely reversed the economics and the environment of the food, um, you could get people to eat healthy without it being a greater effort. So I, I argue that the reason we eat the way we eat is because of our food environment. You'd have to change the way you advertise. You have to change the way food gets distributed. You have to change what gets subsidized and what doesn't get subsidized. Um, how food is presented, where it's laid out. I mean, you walk into a grocery store, what's the first thing you see, right? You know, you see Fruit Loops, like two for one today on the Fruit Loops, right? right? right. Um, there's also the things as well, which is you have to sort of change our cultural approach to food, which is you, you would have to get people more comfortable with cooking because there's no denying it. Like if you cook your own food or at least have some semblance of how to prepare food that doesn't come in a box, you're going to eat better. Could you, by creating a new default environment, simply have people opt into something easier that doesn't cost more that actually produces a better outcome? And I think the answer to that is yes. How one does that at the policy level is very difficult because that touches multiple branches of a person's life. So it's, I think pol- policymakers w- like the idea of taxation because that's a trick they know very well. Right. It's one legislative tool. Um, but I'm not convinced it's the answer, actually. I am so happy that Peter joined us on the show. He is one of those people that you can't help but be inspired and excited with all the knowledge you learn from him. So on the three main topics, here's what I learned. On sleep, 
I just think that our culture pushes us too hard to achieve when in reality our bodies need a lot more sleep. Relearning how to love sleep is something that as we age, we should all commit to. My second takeaway is about exercise. Perhaps we should all borrow a page from Jesse and push ourselves a bit harder. I think as we age, we accept the fact that we don't have the same energy we used to have and let that old man and old woman in too early. And third, in my takeaway from nutrition, that it's all about balance. It can be a tremendous source of joy, but it's also core to longevity. Nutrition is a very personal journey we should all be aware and committed to. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.